When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. What attracted me to, to white nationalism when I encountered it as a 16-year-old drunken punk rocker was that just it, it so repulsed civil society. It just seemed like my whole life I was looking for the best way to piss people off. What is the journey to a world of hate? And once you're deep in the lifestyle, is there a journey out of it? Our guest today is Arno Michaelis, who spent seven years in the white nationalist movement before ultimately leaving and becoming an advocate for peace. And he has a lot to say about what really works when it comes to violent extremism and hate-fueled racism, and what doesn't work. I know from experience that no one was ever going to beat the Nazi out of me. Like, our society now is like, well, we need to punish racists, we need to silence them, we need to reject them, we need to ostracize them, as if we can, you know, make them suffer more, we'll make them less hateful and violent, which I don't agree with whatsoever. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today about the human capacity for change. Arno grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a nice house, in a nice neighborhood, with two parents who loved him very much. Like, so much, they were constantly telling him how gifted he was, that he was a genius, that he could do anything, but their relationship with each other was not a happy one. His dad struggled with alcohol addiction, and his mom was working two jobs just to keep the lights on. And they argued constantly about money, bills. And so growing up, Arno witnessed his mother suffering every day. And it was really difficult for me. And instead of being a good kid and being like, hey, mom, I love you, how can I help? I just started to distance myself from her and from my dad, who loved me very much despite the disease he has. And, of course, that made my suffering worse. I started lashing out at other kids. There's a concept I talk about a lot, just hurt people hurt people. And as a hurt child, I started hurting other kids. And I got a kick out of it because it gave me a thrill to see others in distress. And I can't really explain that. I don't know if that's just like a personality flaw of mine or, you know, when I was hurting, it, I, you heard the crabs in a bucket theory, like you, people want to drag people down to where they're at when they're having a hard time. But looking back in like Monday morning psychoanalysis of my life, I think that as a kid, hearing about how wonderful I was while I felt horrible inside of seeing my mother suffer, it made me like want to just smash everything to say like, I, I, okay, I'm not wonderful. I'm horrible. And if you don't believe me, 
watch what I'm going to do to this kid. Watch what I'm going to do to this school. And, and I think that my inability to navigate this dichotomy of like everyone expecting so much for me and, and showering all this affection and phrase on me with my internal struggle of, of seeing my mom suffer was the friction that kind of drove all my antisocial behavior. That makes so much sense, what you just said. The, the misalignment, right? Feeling so broken and this notion that just look at me, I'll prove it. I'll prove how wrong you are about the truth of me, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way to put it. And, and I'd also mention that, and I hear this from my parents, of course, all the time who don't want to, you know, say, oh, you're a horrible kid. They're, my parents are you were a really nice kid. Like, you, you, yeah, you did a lot of naughty things and, and you were a hellion and caused a lot of trouble. But at the same time, like, I could be really sweet. I, I recall in, uh, I think it was about first grade, and, and I was a full-blown bully at this point. I had a, you know, a list of my victims that I would harass every day. Oh, that but, early? I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I started bullying. Well, my younger brother was really the first victim of my bullying. You know, every older, younger brother has some stories of <laughs> bullying and whatnot. But our, me and my younger brother kind of took that to an extreme. And by by that, I mean I did more so than him. So before I even went to school, I had been bullying my little brother for a while. Well, I'm, I'm glad you shared all this because I do think people, I don't know if put in the box is the right, but people want to why and immediately go to the childhood, right? It must have been violent and yep. awful and hate-filled. And what you're saying was... It wasn't. <laughs> it, yeah. it, pain and suffering is the shared human experience. So there was pain and suffering, but I think you've done a great job. And it sounds like justice to your parents to portray it all. So thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. What is, you know, this evolution and, you know, as you said, you were really bullying and acting out your sounds like inner hatred at a young age, but the evolution from a pissed off little kid to a neo-Nazi skinhead, I'm always so interested in looking back in the little moments that you can connect, that start to make sense. What were those for you? Well, it, for me, I what attracted me to, to white nationalism when I encountered it as a 16-year-old drunken punk rocker was that just it, it so repulsed civil society. It just seemed like my whole life I was looking for the best way to piss people off. And one of the reasons I got into punk was because punk pissed people off. Like it was, especially in the mid-late 80s, like it was still far from mainstream where it would arrive later. But I found that really intriguing and, and attractive about punk. And, like, I, I just want to shock the people who think they're shocking other people. And that I was in that frame of mind when a friend in the punk scene played a, a British white power skinhead band for me. And the lyrics were all about, like, race and nation and blood and soil. So, like, that's, like, who I was as a punk rocker. I just wanted fast, loud music that shocked people, that like gave you an adrenaline rush. And I didn't like anyone who didn't conform to my idea of what punk was, 
which is a very like unpunk <laughs> stance. Punk is about questioning authority and, and not conforming. And I wanted everyone to conform to my idea of nonconformity, if that makes any kind of sense. Well, you've explained it, and we're going to talk about, you know, hate is a disease. And speaking of disease, alcoholism, what age were you when you would describe yourself as a full-blown alcoholic? I was a full-blown alcoholic the minute I drank a beer. Alcoholism is a genetic disease as well as an environmental disease. And I had, like, both of those risk factors stacked up. And on both sides of my family, my mom's not an alcoholic, but there's a lot of alcoholism in her side of the family. And on my dad's side, all alcoholics. So I I really don't think there was any chance of me ever being able to drink responsibly. So I, I, I would say from the first beer I had at age 14, I, I was an alcoholic. And, and that played out. Like I, once I got drunk, like all I wanted to do was get drunk. That was just... Everything I did revolved around the acquisition and drinking of beer. You do describe hate as a disease and these two diseases simultaneously, the disease of alcoholism and the disease of hate, it's escalating. As you said, you know, you're almost chasing the high of pissing people off, of getting the reaction. So the rise of the progression of your disease of hate, how is it escalating and what does that look like? It's interesting because like the, I think my addiction to lashing out was like my gateway drug to alcohol <laughs> and, and then the alcohol became another gateway drug to, to the hate. And, and they certainly did co-present and exacerbate each other. The more I drank, the more I, I needed that thrill of lashing out. And when does it solidify or I don't, you can explain. I, I'm curious to know how it works as a gang or an organization or a, a club. Is there a formality or a process of going from being angry at punk shows to joining, becoming a white nationalist? There was definitely like a, a, a milestone in that process for me. And that was I had already become a a neo-Nazi skinhead. And and that kind of, that was a process as well. It's important for people to understand that the skinhead counterculture began in the late 60s, early 70s in the UK. And it wasn't racist at the outset. They weren't Cub Scouts. These guys were like football hooligans and they'd go drink and fight at soccer games. But they listened to reggae and ska and they included among them immigrants from the Caribbean, immigrants from Pakistan. And that's how the skinhead movement started. In the late 70s, there was a fascist group in Britain called the National Front. And they had the idea that the white skinheads could be kind of their brown shirts as they promoted their fascism. And they started recruiting amongst the white skinheads and saying like, hey, you know, this Pakistani friend you got over here, he's not your friend. He's a problem. This Everything going wrong in Britain is his fault. And enough of them bought into that, that this racist offshoot of skinheads arose in the late 70s. That's what I ended up getting mixed up in. But before I be, like said, yes, I'm a white power skinhead, there was this kind of like nebulous group of skinheads 
in the punk scene that not all were racist. Some would say like, I'm not racist at all. And some would say like, oh, I'm just into white pride, but not white power. That's really racist. And then I was like, no, you know what? I'm into white power. You guys are all wussies. <laughs> and, and it was really because it was the most extreme position available to me. That That's what I found most attractive at that point. So the, the schism happened to where half the skinheads in Milwaukee decided they're going to be the anti-racist skinheads. And the other half was me and my guys. And, and we would chase those guys around and beat them up. That was a big pastime of ours, especially at the beginning. After being in the White Power crew for a few months, Arno and his guys got invited to a White Power rally in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He says it was kind of like the Super Bowl between fascist and anti-fascist. But the numbers were nowhere near even. There were around 50 neo-Nazis and hundreds, if not a thousand, anti-fascists. The rally happened every year. They were hurling bricks at each other, throwing stones and old batteries at each other, anything they could find. We're in front of a big building that was all glass and then just the windows start shattering. So there's like broken glass raining through the air. I'm getting all cut up. And and it was like the biggest adrenaline rush I ever had in my life at that point. It was just like, I felt like uh, the movie 300. You know, it's like there's 50 of us standing against a thousand reds. You know, it had this really romantic kind of attraction to it. And I, I... you know, got a big cut in my head. I uh, all sorts of other little bangs and bruises, but every single one of them was just like welcome. I was like, yes, like this is what I live for. And and but one of the things that really struck me from that interaction was one of the antifa was a white dude about my age, and he had these long, stringy, blonde dreadlocks, and he had a tie-dyed shirt on with a peace sign on of it, and he's ripping bricks out of the ground and. Screaming throwing him at me going, die, you Nazi bastard. And he's like pelting me with bricks. And on, on the way back, I'm just thinking like, what a what a hypocrite that guy was. Like wh- how twisted these people are. Because I felt that I say what I do, I say what I'm about, and then I represent that. I say I'm a Nazi. I say I'm white power. I say I'm fighting for my race, and I go do that. I, I felt very like genuine and and I looked at uh, across the battle line here at my opponents and they just seemed like utterly corrupt and hypocritical and evil to me and and that was the moment when I went from being like a drunken hooligan to a very militant white nationalist and when you say militant I know a lot of white nationalist served in the military at one point. And this idea of being a warrior fighting a cause. So when I hear you talk about it, it's almost this addiction to the thrill, the energy, the reaction. How much of the ideology piece? Well, I guess you're speaking to it now. You did start to believe those things, right? Right. Well, the, the the initial cause, I the, the idea first ideological tones I got from white nationalism were, were from song lyrics, as as I mentioned, like talking about race and nation and blood and soil and how we're going to fight for our people against these evil hordes that are are trying to kill us all, and 
that's what I found really seductive. But I, I didn't really have a lot of the background of the ideology. It, it wasn't until we started really making noise and like attending events like this and developing a network with other white nationalists around the country, eventually around the world, that like all these old school neo-Nazis would start crawling out from under their rocks. And in the skinheads, they, they obviously were really excited to see a bunch of young people kind of taking, resurrecting this cause that they had almost given up on at a point. And they would like, here, you got to read this book. You got to read this book by George Lincoln Rockwell. You know, read this book by William Pierce. And, and that's where I really started getting indoctrinated into the ideology by connecting with older people who had been doing this for a while and who were really immersed in the ideology and knew like what books to hit these crazy kids with and, and knew they were smart enough too to do it in a way where they, didn't, they weren't trying to assume command over us. And, and that's what, what led me down the path to where I, I started uh, propagating and, and uh, proselytizing the ideology myself. Meanwhile, at 16 years old, Arno dropped out of high school and moved in with roommates who shared his ideology. His mom got him a job at her friend's t-shirt printing business, something he actually enjoyed, and he was good at it. He worked 40 hours a week at the shop, and when he wasn't at work, he and his buddies were out drinking and fighting. They also decided to start a band, since music is what brought them all into white nationalism in the first place. They had already been playing punk music for years. It was a natural transition to become a white power band. And that's what we did. And, and our band was like a magnet for every pissed off white kid in Wisconsin. And it was a big driver of our, our crew growing as it did. But that was the day-to-day -day life. It was uh, printing t-shirts, drinking, fighting, making music, chasing girls, drinking, fighting. And, and all throughout this, like the the ideology of white nationalism was woven and like becoming more and more embedded like with each step forward that I took. And recruiting new people, can you speak to that a little bit as you're trying to grow this organization, this movement that you're a part of, what, you know, in hindsight you were looking for and who you were identifying? Yeah, so when I was a, a white power skinhead and I'm recruiting, I have this archetype I call Joe Pissed Off White Kid. So that's the John Doe of white nationalist uh, recruiting targets. So Joe Pissed Off White Kid is out there, and I, I run across him wherever. And I need to do two things first before I can start really bringing him into white nationalism. First of all, I need him to identify as white. I need him to assume a racial identity. If I'm talking to Joe Pissed Off White Kid and I say, who are you? He's he's very unlikely to say, I'm white. In, in that time, Joe is going to say, well, um, I'm American. Uh, my family's Irish. We're, we're Catholic. He's going to have all sorts of ways to identify himself other than racially. So the first thing I need to do is convince him that his racial identity is really his, not only the most important identity, but the only identity. And I would do that by saying, well, Joe, you know, regardless of how you identify yourself, the enemies of our people identify you as white. And you have no choice about that. 
They're going to, you are going to be branded an enemy by them because of the color of your skin. And so you can either be crushed by these evil people who want to kill all the white people on the planet, or you can join us and fight back and do something about it. And if I can get him to adopt the racial identity at that point and say, yes, I am white. Yes, white people are under threat. Then I can take him to stage two, which is to convince him that he is persecuted because he's white. And I'm going to say, look, Joe, they're going to tell you that everything wrong with the world is your fault. They're going to tell you that white people are evil and oppressors and colonizers and fragile and uh, they're going to blame everything wrong in the world on you, and you you won't be able to say anything about it unless you fight back with us. And so now I can get him buying into that persecution. He is now a white nationalist. He identifies as white. He feels persecuted because of it. And now I can take him down the next steps, which will the intention was to to make him an active and committed and uh, ready to kill and die member of our group. And that's when the exploiting the pain came in. That's at the point where I would try to find out what's going wrong in Joe pissed off white kid's life. And eight times out of 10, then as it is now, Joe pissed off white kid is pissed off because he doesn't have a girlfriend. And back in those days, rather than be pissed off, Joe pissed off white kid's friend and say, well, hey, why don't you try taking a shower once in a while? quit drinking all the time, study, <laughs> work out, like make yourself into someone that someone might be attracted to. That's what I would have said had I cared about Joe Pustoff White Kid. But instead of giving him practical advice that was very difficult to follow, it's, it's not easy to change your lifestyle, change your habits and look in the mirror and say, what can I do better to improve my life? That's, that's very difficult. So instead of doing something that would help him, I say, no, you know why you don't have a girlfriend, Joe pissed off white kid? Because the Jews put Michael Jordan on all these billboards and meat magazine ads and TV commercials to corrupt the minds of white women, to make them think that these savages are the ideal man and you're not. And now Joe pissed off white kid's eyes are lighting up because now he has an easy excuse. He has an easy out to his problems. Rather than like doing difficult work to improve himself, he can say, oh, it's all the Jews' fault that I don't have a girlfriend. And as stupid as that sounds to any thinking person, to a 16-year-old kid who's going through puberty, having a tough time in life, most likely has a very long list of adverse childhood experiences they've been through, and things aren't working out for them, it's actually like music to their ears that they can just kind of shirk all this responsibility for their life and blame it all on Jews. And and that was how we recruited people into white nationalism. So, you know, when you say a, a teenage boy who's pissed off because he doesn't have a girlfriend, there's obviously billions of teenage boys who are <laughs> super bummed that they don't. <laughs> but what I hear you saying is that's just like, a green light or a window there when you've gotten that far there obviously is a much deeper hole and wounds that they believe this group and ideology will fill so on the deeper level i know you talk about identity and belonging so yeah if you can just speak to that a little bit beyond the surface of I mean, I imagine what they're saying, I'm not a psychologist, is 
I'm not lovable or I'm, you know, not loved. And then you're saying, here's why, you know, you can do this to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to touch on something that you brought up earlier, um, I mentioned hurt people hurt people earlier. And I, th- I think that's just a, a really, for me, it's like a daily tool that I use to kind of correct my course and call myself out and also to cope with ill behavior that I see from my fellow human beings every day. If I'm cut off in traffic or, you know, someone's rude at a store, I could get really angry or I can remind myself that hurt people hurt people. And they're probably acting that way because something's going wrong in their life, which empowers me to respond with compassion rather than aggression. Uh, I'm a Buddhist nowadays and Buddhism 101 is like, if you live, you're going to suffer. Like suffering's part of life. And I, so I believe all humans go through some kind of suffering, some kind of trauma in their life. And thank God, the, the vast majority of them do not become neo-Nazis or they do not become hateful and violent. And that's because they typically find some healthy means of processing their trauma, whether it's art or athletics or the long list of things I fail to connect with or a great family or a career, activism, what have you. When people find a healthy means to process their trauma, they're going to be less likely to pass it on to someone else. And so when we talk about hurt people, hurt people, yes, you're right. All sorts of boys don't have girlfriends and they're all bummed out about it, but they don't all become neo-Nazis. You need the perfect storm to happen of the adverse childhood experiences, the, the feeling of being uh, marginalized the feeling of rejection, and then obviously the proximity or the connection with the ideology and with the person who's doing the recruiting, all those things have to fall into place before you're going to go that direction. That makes a lot of sense. Um, So I'm curious your relationship with your parents, your younger brother, at that time, how was your relationship with your family. I presume you were alienating yourself from relationships that were not in alignment with how you were living and what you were believing at the time. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. But my little brother is an amazing guy, and I, I, I feel horrible even recalling this. But, like, throughout both of our childhoods, I— there were times when I was his buddy and I was a good big brother, but there's many more times where I was just a complete asshole of a big brother and I I put him through all sorts of horrible things. And no matter what I did to him, he always loved me and always looked up to me. That carried into the skinhead thing. He he got in kind of mixed up in it for maybe about a year. And he's he's a lot smarter than I am. And he <laughs> after after a year of kind of dipping his toes in, he's like, yeah, this isn't for me. You guys go do what you're going to do. But he went to go play uh, guitar in a Leonard Skinner cover band called Looking Skyward. <laughs> and, uh, and and he, he moved out on his own and, and just kind of built his own life. And, and he's, a, he's a great guy. Um, he lives on Oregon now, too. My parents, while I was in the throes of this, it, first of all, the only time they'd hear from me is when I needed something. And my parents were always like, we love you and you'll always have a place to stay. We think what you're doing is horrible. We're not in the, this ideology that you have. And I was always vocal about it, always trying to recruit my mom and dad into, into the ideology and well, my mom is very, very progressive, and my dad is very, very conservative. 
both of them were mortified at the ideology and both of them wanted nothing to do with it. And they were also would let me know that they weren't a fan of, of what I was doing, but they also didn't really have any idea of how bad it was. Like I, I, I to this day, I, I don't want to reveal the real depths of what I, the, the harm that I caused to them because um, they love me and they're, they're awesome people, and I don't want to put them... I, I've put them both through enough <laughs> as it is. I don't want to put them through any more grief. So I'm, I'm just trying to be the best son I can nowadays, and um, I love my mom and dad very much. But but their their refusal to give up on me was, was actually a, a bigger part of my turnaround as anything else. Many years into his neo-Nazi lifestyle, a woman comes into Arno's life, also a skinhead. And together, they decide they're going to have a child, a white child, raised inside the white power movement. But things didn't go according to plan. The birth of Arno's daughter started to change things, but not right away. When we come back, Arno shares how and why he eventually left the movement. And later, his advice on the best way to de-radicalize someone with extremist, hateful ideology. Stay with us. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. For today's episode, Arno chose Parents for Peace. Parents for Peace is a nonprofit empowering families, friends, and communities to prevent radicalization, violence, and extremism. They provide guidance and early intervention, raise public awareness, and advocate for effective policy solutions. They even have a helpline to assist family and friends effectively intervene with loved ones swept up in an extremist movement. You can find out more about their work on their website, parentsforpeace.org. That's parents the number four, peace.org. My daughter's mother and I met in uh, 91. We really hit it off at the time. Um, she was absolutely gorgeous, looked a lot like Scarlett Johansson. That was really all I was interested in at the time, but uh, she was equally enamored of me. But she was a, a skinhead also. She was actually one of the original Chicago area skinheads, and it was in it before I was. But by the time we met, like she was already getting grown out of it, and kind of uh, it was it was wearing on her. But it, as that was, like when we first met, we were together about six months, and then we decided that we were going to bring a white child into the world because it was our duty as white people to populate the earth with more white people. And so my daughter was willfully conceived as driven by this racist ideology. And in beautiful irony, it, it was actually my, my daughter was probably the, the number one factor in me leaving. My daughter was born in 1992. I was 21 years old when that happened. I'll never forget, I was there when she was born and they whisked her from her mother's womb to some little hamburger warmer looking thingy. 
And I, I ran over there and I kind of looked down at her and she opened her eyes. And for the first time in her life, the first thing I, they say babies can't even see at that stage, but I was the first thing she saw. And, and I looked down upon her and, and I would love to say like, that's when everything changed. Like then I, then I decided to leave it all behind, but actually, um, her mom was understandably worn out and she kicked me out of the hospital room. <laughs> and so I went to the bar, got really wasted bought a round of drinks for everybody there, I think. And uh, a week later, my younger brother and I, my younger brother was out. He, you know, he was by no means part of the movement, but him and I still like to go and get drunk and get in bar fights. So me and him went out and we got in a fight with this whole bar and I came back home at like three in the morning covered in somebody else's blood. And my daughter's mom said, you're a horrible father. You're a piece of shit and you don't deserve to be a dad and something's going to change. And, and I was so wasted. I didn't have everything to say in my defense. So I grabbed this EK combat dagger, which was like a six inch knife that was as sharp as a straight razor. And I just about took my left hand off with it. And fortunately, um, baby mama was well-versed in first aid and not squeamish at the sight of blood. And she managed to wrap a bed sheet around my wrist and kneel on it to keep me from bleeding out while the paramedics came. But that's what happened a week after my daughter was born. It didn't change me on the spot. I wish I could say that, but it wasn't until my daughter was about 18 months old, me and her mom split up and I found myself a single parent to an 18 month old girl. And a couple months after that, a second friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight after a concert my band had played. And by that time, I had lost count of how many friends had been incarcerated. So it finally hit me then in 1994 that if I didn't leave the movement, death or prison was going to take me away from my daughter. And so that, that's when I ultimately made that move to leave. And there's a couple moments you talk about because there's leaving and then there's the dismantling of your belief systems, right? Right, yeah. So the most frequently asked question I get is, how did you leave? How did you change? Why did you leave? It's all kind of the same question. And the answer is exhaustion. It's exhausting to live like that. It's exhausting to see the entire world as enemies because everyone who didn't look like me was an enemy by default. So every waking moment of every day, I walk through my life surrounded by enemies of my own concoction. And it's exhausting to live like that. It was exhausting to do things that I knew in my heart were wrong, but I did them anyway because it gave me that fix I needed to get a thrill. Even as I'm punching someone, I have this voice inside being like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? This guy didn't do anything to you. And I couldn't even acknowledge that voice, much less answer it. And, and it, it took an incredible amount of energy to keep suppressing this knowledge of my inner wrongness. And so that was really exhausting. It was exhausting to cut myself off from pop culture that I had always taken for granted my whole life. I I've, was, as a kid, and I am to, to this day, a complete sports, TV, music, film nut. Like, I love all those things. I watch all kinds of movies. I listen to music every day. I watch sports every day. I, I love all these weird, absurd <laughs> pop culture aspects of our society. And as a white nationalist, all of those things are forbidden. 
They're all seen as Jewish propaganda to destroy the white race. So I couldn't watch the Green Bay Packers play football on Sunday because that would have made me complicit in the destruction of my people. So I'd sneak away to watch the Packer game and I hope none of my buddies caught me doing it. But what was most exhausting was when people I claimed to hate treated me with kindness. And I was very fortunate that throughout that seven-year span, there were time and time again when people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, Afro-American, Latino, and Asian coworkers treated me with kindness when I least deserved it, but when I needed it most. And in doing so, they put themselves in positions of power. And this is something I, I really want to emphasize, and I, I try to do this in every chance I get, because sadly, there's a lot of people nowadays, particularly in the anti-racism space, who are like, yeah, well, kindness and forgiveness and compassion hasn't gotten us anywhere so far. Like, I'm done being kind. I'm done being forgiving. I'm done being compassionate. And it breaks my heart to hear that on, on numerous levels. For one, because it's incredibly harmful to the individual with that mindset, first of all. It's, it's harmful to them. Second of all, I know from experience that no one was ever going to beat the Nazi out of me. Like, I, I, I was constantly engaging in violence throughout that seven years. And there was never a situation. And I got my ass kicked bad. I got hit with a lead pipe, with pool sticks, with baseball bats, uh, you know, limbs messed up. I, I regularly got the snot beat out of me. And it never, ever made me any less hateful or any less violent. Instead of playing by my rules, which I wanted to be aggression and hostility and hate, these people who treated me with kindness said, I'm going to dictate the rules of engagement to you. Instead of allowing you to dictate the rules of engagement to me, which is what I was trying to do when I talk all my racist nonsense and like work hard to offend people, people are like, I, I, I'm not going to be swayed by your hostility. I'm going to demonstrate for you how human beings should treat each other, and I'm going to do so by being kind to you, even when I know you hate me. These moments of kindness happen early on in Arno's time as a white nationalist. In those first few months, every week on payday, he would cash his check and go get a Big Mac value meal from a McDonald's nearby. And I would I go in there and I, I walk in and I at the counter there's this elderly Afro-American woman and she has this like amazing smile. Just like this beaming smile that's just like the sun. It doesn't care who it shines on, it just shines on everyone. And it made me really uncomfortable because I'm trying to hate black people and it's damn near impossible to hate this sweet elderly woman. So I, I go, and I'm just like uncomfortable with this, but I want my Big Mac, so I just order it and I leave. A week goes by, it's, it's payday again, and I'm just thinking of the Big Mac, and I go get my Big Mac, and, and it's her again. She's still working, and same time of day, same day of the week. She remembers me, and she remembers what I ordered, and she's asking, you know, how was my day? And <laughs> talking about the cold weather, it was winter, and I'm just super, my skin's crawling now. And I'm like, just, yeah, I get my food and I leave. That I got paid on Wednesday. The next Saturday, again, because I'm a gifted genius, I thought it'd be really clever to get a swastika tattooed on my middle finger, which I did that Saturday night at my house through with a homemade tattoo machine. And that was done intentionally to repulse people so that when somebody got in my face and said, are you racist? I could flip them off 
show him the swastika, have like a double-edged sword there. Here's the obscene gesture with the obscene symbol. And then I could close my hand into a fist and hit them. Like that was the whole plan. The next payday comes around. I'm, I'm just in Big Mac mode. I go to McDonald's and I freeze in the doorway because who's behind the counter but my lovely, kind, elderly Afro-American woman. And she has that same smile going. And I freeze in the doorway because I have this involuntary thought of like, I don't want her to see this swastika. So I sit in the doorway and I'm waiting for a minute and I'm like, does anybody else work here? Like, is somebody else going to come to the counter? No, she's the only one at the counter and nobody else is coming up there. And then I'm thinking like, where's the next closest McDonald's? And, you know, they're, there's a bunch of them, but it was far away. And it was December in Wisconsin and very cold and I was hungry. So the siren song of the Big Mac wins out and I go up to the counter and I'm like, well, I'll just like keep my hand in my pocket and she won't see it. Not thinking that I'm going to have to take money out of my pocket to pay. And so I, I get up there and she's like, oh, you want your Big Mac value meal with Diet Coke? And no, she's super nice. And as I'm getting my money out, I'm trying not to show the back of my hand, which is really difficult. <laughs> it didn't work out. And she saw the tattoo and she just goes, it, it reminded me of when my grandma, who was just a living saint and the sweetest woman in the world, would kind of like scold me for beating up my little brother. It was the exact same, like, tone and look. Like, I love you, but come on now. And this woman says to me, what is that on your finger? And I I couldn't answer her. I, all I could do was stare down at my steel-toed skinhead boots. And, and I was already 6'3 by this time, and she was much shorter. I was probably a good foot taller than her. But I, I felt like six inches high when she asked me that. And all I could say is I, I just said, well, it, it's nothing. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I know that's not who you are. You're a better person than that. And I was like, can I have my big meal, please? And I got my food and I scurried out of there. I, I wolfed it down on the way home. When I got home, I got as drunk as I could, as fast as I could. And that was just a couple months in. And as much as I tried to like erase that experience from who I was and suppress it with alcohol and violence and hate, it remains like it's the, the nature of human experience is that we can't just erase things that happen to us. So if there, we could, there'd be no mental health industry. And, and so that experience stuck with me and, and along with other aspects of kindness that was shown to me by aforementioned people, each act of kindness like drove home how wrong I was until after seven years Combined with everything else, combined with, you know, not being able to watch Seinfeld or Hollywood movies and the Packers and combined with knowing what I was doing was wrong and, and knowing that I was disappointing my parents and they still love me and combined with becoming a single parent, that's when it all kind of came to a head. And I was like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm leaving. And that, that happened in, uh, I think, like late spring of 1994. And then what happens next, the reconciliation and building a new life? Uh, I, being a man of extremes, <laughs> I went from uh, being a white power skinhead to being a raver within the space of about a year and a half. Um, it was about a year and a half after I left, and I because I, I didn't want to hang out with any of my neo-Nazi buddies anymore. And the only friend I had was this kid who, who kind of dipped his toes in the movement for maybe a couple months and then left. 
and him and I had stayed in touch and, and he was going to these rave parties and he lived on a, like in a house in the UWM campus and they had, you know, parties there all the time. And I'd go over there and just like to party and hang out, um, listen to the Beastie Boys again. That was amazing. I was just, cause I, I love the Beastie Boys before I became a skinhead. And obviously as a skinhead, you can't listen to a bunch of Jews doing black people music. So I set the Beastie Boys aside and then kind of reconnected with them because my buddy and his friends would always play it, and that was amazing. But, like, every Saturday he would go off to Chicago or somewhere else to go to these rave parties, and I was afraid to go. I'm like, what What are they? What do you do? And he's like, you just, it's techno music, and you just dance. And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't, <laughs> that's scary. I don't know, I don't want to do that. But finally he prevailed on me to go to one of these parties. And it was just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. It was on the south side of Chicago, thousands and thousands of people of every possible sexual orientation, gender identity, ethnicity, socioeconomic background you can imagine. Just like not only having a good time together, but like literally having a, a non-sexual spiritual love for each other that was just kind of infused throughout the party and the music and the lights and, and everything. They call it the vibe at, at these parties. That really changed my life. It was, uh, I, I was embraced and forgiven by all sorts of people that I would have attacked just a couple of years earlier. I actually had, uh, this was before I had all my swastika tattoos covered up. And on my right forearm, I, I used to have this pile of skulls and swastikas and a bus of an SS soldier, and it said white power. And one night I was I was at a party, south side of Chicago, some filthy, dilapidated warehouse, and I'm sitting on the floor at like five in the morning. Some girl has my arm in her lap, and she's like stroking the tattoo, but like looking at me with kind of concern. And she's like, what's this tattoo about? And I was like, well, I, you know, I used to be a Nazi skinhead. I feel really horrible about it. And she's like, well, you're not anymore, are you? And I'm like, no. And she's like, okay. <laughs> it's just like the party goes on. And that's everyone I met back then was like that. They they were like, it doesn't matter where you were. It matters where you are now. And, and right now you're here with us and you're not like that anymore. And because people gave me that chance, I think that was really the the most formulative thing that brought me from there to here. I, I think without that chance, had I been shunned from the rave scene, as sadly some people are nowadays, as uh, the outrage over racism, it tends, it, it's become very punitive. Like our society now is like, well, we need to punish racists. We need to silence them. We need to reject them. We need to ostracize them as if we can you know, make them suffer more will make them less hateful and violent, which I don't agree with whatsoever. And I, again, I'm I'm very sad that I've seen instances in the rave scene nowadays where, um, for instance, a guy who was at the Charlottesville rally and then like left, he's like, this is stupid. I don't want anything to do with this. And then he tried to become a DJ and it got out that he was at this rally and people were like, he could never play at a party. He could never go to our parties. We don't want him here. We're rejecting him. And and I, this was like right before I left Facebook in 20. And I, I wrote a big long thing saying like, you know, half the people here who are calling for this guy's head are also people who think I do such great work and like compliment me and phrase me for my story. And I'm like, do you understand that I would not be who I am today had I been rejected when I went to my first party in 1996? And some people got it and other people didn't. And um, 
you know, I spoke my piece, but it, it basically comes back to like, we're not going to reject ourselves to a, a healthier society. We, and again, this kind of leads into the public health approach to combating hate and violent extremism in that we can't politicize this. When we politicize violent extremism, it just exacerbates and it validates it. Whereas if we look at it as a public health issue, the same way we now look at HIV, the same way we now look at alcohol and drug addiction, the same way we now look at, at domestic violence, there was a time when domestic violence was just seen as like, oh, that's how husband and wife act. You know, if the dinner's not ready, you give her a little slap. And that, people didn't have a problem with that. There was a time when, when alcoholics were looked at as just worthless drunks that should just be thrown in jail. And there's nothing more you can do to them. There, there was a time when HIV was looked at as some sort of divine punishment for a sinful lifestyle. And fortunately, now as a society, we've moved past all that ignorance and we now look at all of those issues as public health issues, as we should. And I, it's my hope that we can make that same paradigm shift while we're addressing hate and violent extremism in our society and, and get to a point where we understand that it's a disease that's affecting somebody and that they have all the capability in the world to leave that hate behind and become not only a productive citizen in our society, but the amazing human being they've meant to be all along. So the compassion, forgiveness of others, how was and is, I imagine, the process of forgiving yourself? You know, you've talked about having tremendous guilt, remorse, shame, I imagine. So what is your internal reconciliation as people on the outside believe in your change and believe in you? How was your internal process of that? I was really only able to begin a process of self-forgiveness when I started meditating, which I did in 2009. But stepping back a little before then, so I, I quit drinking in 2004, which was another huge milestone in my life. This January of January 1st actually has marked 20 years of alcohol free for me. And I'm, I'm delighted about it. I don't miss it whatsoever. I'm uh, looking forward to being alcohol free for the rest of my life. And it was, everything was great when I first quit drinking. I, I felt really good. And, and I, but I had this feeling like I, I needed to reconcile my past still. And I, I actually, at the time I started an IT consultancy and I was thinking about, you know, of course, we're going to go IPO and be the next Google. And um, I kind of ran that into the ground. I'm not the best CEO. Uh, but I, was, I, I managed to keep my independent consultancy going. And then I met this woman who I felt madly, madly in love with. And we had a, a brief relationship. And she ends up dumping me for the, the sales manager at the Land Rover dealership. And I was just utterly devastated utterly heartbroken. And now I don't have alcohol to numb my pain with. And I fell into this like year long suicidal depression that was kind of catalyzed by the breakup. But I, I knew even when the breakup happened that it wasn't about this woman, it was about my past. And I felt like I had to do something to reconcile my past before I could go on with my life much less go riding off into the sunset with a beautiful woman who loved me. So during this year-long suicidal depression, it was so bad that I actually resented my daughter for being the reason I couldn't kill myself. 
And this wasn't lost on her. She was a 13, 14 at the time, having a rough time herself as a teenager. And, and after just about a year, like she literally grabbed me by the collar and was like, dad, snap out of it. I need a dad. And she was a bitch anyway. <laughs> and I was, I, I, so I did snap out of it. That, that's what began the, the process of, of reconciling my past. So Arno started writing. And through the writing, he was able to process and make sense of his past. And by 2009, he was doing much better, got over the girl, started dating again, and went back to school. A writing tutor encouraged him to write a book about his experiences. And in 2010, he published his first book, Life After Hate. And that really helped me feel a lot better, but I still, I was kind of resigned to never forgiving myself. And I felt that that was like necessary to honor the people that I hurt, to never forgive myself for the harm that I had done. And that's where I was at when I, I took a class at UWM called Meditation and Wellness. My daughter was always interested in Buddhism her entire life. And, and I early on, I'm like, it's about suffering. I don't want to, who wants a religion about suffering? Like, that's, <laughs> that sounds stupid. But I took this class that I was taught to meditate. And my first time getting up off that meditation cushion, I realized that my intruding thoughts on my focus of my breath during that meditation session, which at the time were about a cop's double cheeseburger with the works and the asshole will cut me off in traffic. But it occurred to me, if I could work with those thoughts, there's no reason I couldn't work with this grudge I had against myself. Like they were made out of the same raw material, which is like a product of my mind. Albeit the grudge is a mountain of decades of harm and suffering and trauma versus Nice cops, double cheeseburger at the works. But still, it, it, it was a proof of concept. And it was at that point that I realized self-forgiveness was possible. And once I realized the possibility of it, it became much easier to realize, of course. And as I, I went public with my story on the MLK holiday of 2010, almost from the get-go, I started getting contact from people either in the movement or like fresh out who were like, Hey, you know, this is awesome. I love that you're sharing the story. Can you help me? Like I'm having problems with this, this and that. And so I, I started working with uh, mainly other guys. Um, There's a couple women, but mainly guys helping them kind of get themselves on a path to healing. And it was while doing that, that I really understood that I, I needed to forgive myself in order to help other people. Like, I, I cannot be as effective as I need to be to help someone else leave hate behind if I hate myself. And so kind of as a matter of tactical necessity, I was like, okay, I need to forgive myself. And, and doing so, I understood it was a process. It wasn't like I'm going to wake up one day and be like, hey, today's the day. I'm forgiven. I forgive myself. Done with that. Like, okay. I knew it was going to be something that I'd be not necessarily struggling with, but working with my entire life. And so nowadays I can honestly say like, Hey, I'm, I'm a good person. I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be happy. I deserve to be successful. And 15 years ago, I could not have gotten those words out of my mouth. Cause I, I don't, I make a point of not saying things 
of trying not to say things that I don't mean. And nowadays I can say those things with, with all authenticity and, um, and seriousness. And, and it feels good to say that, but at the same time, that part of me that hates myself is always there. It's always kind of lurking. And now whenever I, I go through something difficult, which of course I do all the time, like everybody else, that inner voice says, see, you don't, you don't deserve to have this work out. You don't deserve to be successful here. You don't deserve to be happy because of all the people that you hurt and all the harm that you did. And instead of letting that voice lead me on a year-long suicidal depression, nowadays I just kind of acknowledge it. And I'm like, okay, dude, yeah, I hear you. I get it. I know where this comes from, but like, I'm going to put you away now because I got work to do and I can't do it if, if I got you whispering in my ear what a piece of shit I am. So that's now I, I actively work on self forgiveness as a not only self improvement in general, but so I can be better at my job. I can be at my job, and doing so, I, I'm hopefully going to be able to help other people. This podcast is really a place and it's something we talk about <laughs> for brave storytelling. And by that, I mean the bravery and courage it takes to talk about the pieces of yourself or your past that feel deeply shameful. And I'm just curious about your deciding to share on MLK Day, Martin Luther King Day. It's Wednesday. That was Monday. So I think you said it's 14 years ago. Yeah. Were you scared? And, you know, we'll talk about your work today, but the places you speak, I mean, you're walking into all black churches. Were you afraid that will people accept me? Will they listen to me? Will they hate me? I was only afraid. Of, I was much more uncomfortable with an all white audience than I was with an all black audience. <laughs> Far and away. Like I, 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 I have spoken at, Afro-American churches, and I, I recall one in Chicago where on the south side where I, I did a number of talks there. And after one of the talks, I was sitting talking to the reverend, and he's just like, man, that was a great talk. You know, it's so great to have you down here again. I'm like, yeah, this is awesome, man. I'm having a great time. And then he goes, do you understand you're the only white person in here? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I guess. Like, sure. I, you know, that that's just so not part of my identity now. That I I don't I don't have that self consciousness about race I, I I think race is a a product of racism I don't see anything good in it and I I understand it's been shaping our society for 400 years and it continues to but I, I also aspire to um, a society where where race is no longer an issue um, it's really just a concocted ideology developed by racists in order to perpetrate racism. And I, I think it's entirely possible that someday as a society, we can leave it behind. And I kind of operate that way when I'm out doing my thing. But I, I do recall um, one of the first talks I did with my guy, Pardeep Singh Kalika, who was my co-author with For Gift of Our Wounds. Pardeep's father, Sutwant, was the last of seven people murdered by a guy from my old gang on August 5th, 2012. And party reached out to me in October of 12. And we sat down for dinner and just had the most amazing four-hour conversation. And we've been friends and brothers ever since, traveled around the world together, wrote a book together, 
excited about what we're going to do in the next 10 years. But Party and I went down to a town in Wisconsin called Janesville. And it's about an hour and a half from where we're at. And it was the middle of winter, like February. It was freezing cold. And Janesville has always had this reputation as being like the seat of the Ku Klux Klan in Wisconsin. But I, I thought about this as Pardeep and I were driving down there. We came walking in there, and sure enough, it was about 100 white people, a couple Asians, and like one Afro-American guy. And I, I was like way more uncomfortable with that audience than I was with the audience on the south side of Chicago. Because I'm like, which one of these guys is the Klansman? Like, which guy's going to, like, whip a gun out or whatever? And there was cops there and stuff, but I'm still, like— And it didn't, like, overpower me by any means. We we did the talk, and it went great, and, and we we ended up having an amazing experience. In fact, I, I recall afterwards, there was a woman who said the reason she came was because she was embarrassed that her city, like, had this reputation. And she was a white woman, and she brought her family, and she's like, you know, yeah, I'd, I want to change this— this perception that Janesville is some kind of racist town because it's not. And so it ended up being an amazing experience. But, yeah, it's not lost on me that there is that danger. I, I There's a fine line between fearless and foolhardy, and I've been, like, walking it my entire life, and I'll continue to. So there's times when I think maybe I should look over my shoulder more than I do, but then there's other times. The, my default state is that I'm not going to alter my life because I get an email death threat. Like, that's not not going to change anything. So All the Wiser is a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. When we think of how divided we are as humans and the amount of hate in the world, where do you find hope and possibility? Um, this, this is something that sounds really ass backwards, but, but this is one of the first things that come to mind. While we talk about kindness and compassion and forgiveness and gratitude, like practicing those things on a daily basis, it helps you maintain hope because you normalize those things and you make them like part of your being. And the more often you practice those things, be it through meditation or just being nice to someone holding the door at a store or, you know, sharing a joke with the guy at the gas station, brightening someone's day here or there, allowing someone to have some space and traffic in front of you or whatever. That's kind of my day-to-day ongoing exercise that, like, keeps me in a position where I can be hopeful. But the ass-backward thing is this. Part of it comes from spite. <laughs> and the way that happens is, I know that people who are addicted to hate, be it white nationalism or Antifa or Hamas or whatever, they have lost all faith in humanity. And they want to destroy everyone else's faith in humanity. You don't walk into a place of worship and start murdering people like what happened at the Gurdwara in Milwaukee on August 5th, 2012, with a sense of faith in humanity. You do it because you've lost all faith in humanity and you want to destroy everyone else's faith in humanity as well. And the spite comes from me saying, you know what, to hell with you, you're not destroying my faith in humanity. And so whenever things happen in the world, things like October 7th most recently, things that really like tear at my heart, and honestly, like it, 
make me really angry and hateful again. I, I draw on that spite to say like, no, you're not going to do that to me. You're not going to bring me back to that place. And, and it's very difficult. I'm not always successful. There are times when I do get angry and hateful and I've, I've lashed out at people in very recent history about disagreements about October 7th and Israel and Palestine and things like that. But I, I go back to my practices partly because of spite to say like, no, I'm not going to fall back in there. You're not going to do that to me. You're not going to control me. And secondly, because I know that tactically that's the only way to win. That's the only way to prevail in these situations is to connect with compassion and forgiveness and kindness. Those are the only things that are going to solve whatever problem we're facing in the world. That being said, you know, I'm not a pacifist. There's times when people who are hateful and violent need to be neutralized and put in a place where they can no longer hurt themselves and others. But even as we're doing that, either individually or as a society, we need to do it from a place of compassion so that once necessary force has been used to de-escalate and neutralize the violence, you have to be ready to turn right back to compassion once that's happened. And it's incredibly difficult. You know, obviously, the more heinous the crime, the more difficult it is. But I do know from experience that that's really the only way to go. It's that we, we're not going to, just as no one is ever going to beat the Nazi out of me, we're not going to, like, violence our way to a more peaceful society. We have to keep connecting with uh, those noble human qualities that really make the human experience so beautiful. And, and we can't lose sight of that. What is next for you, Arno? What are you dreaming up for the next 10 years? That's a good question. Um, I'm not certain of it myself. I, I want to do more writing. I haven't done a lot of writing in a while, so I, I want to get back into that. And I also um, I wrote a script for a series based on The Gift of Our Wounds, the book that Pardeep and I wrote that I'm pretty happy with. And it was actually a lot of fun to write. And I, the, once I started getting into screenwriting, I'm like, this is so much better than writing a book. It's like, it's way more to the point. You know, it has to be cut down and it has to be like every word has to be super effective. And I, I really enjoy that. I think I'm always going to be involved in uh, intervention and helping people get themselves onto a, a better path. So I, I think that's what the next 10 years is going to look like for me. And I live in Wisconsin and it's like one degree out today and every winter, like it just hurts more and more. I'm 53 years old now. So one thing I very much aspire to do is to move somewhere where there's no winter. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Welcome to LA. You can come here. I love LA. I absolutely love it. The land of sunshine and films, two things you're yep. drawn to. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Arno. And before I let you go, I watched your documentary last night. It was unbelievable and so important, especially at this time and place. Where can listeners see it? Uh, the documentary is called Refuge, and it's available on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Google Play, and Vudu. 
you probably gathered by now that elevator pitches are not my strong point, but Refuge is a documentary about how refugees make our society better and also about how we as human beings can be a refuge to one another. It's about a man named Chris Buckley, who is a U.S. Army veteran, was injured in a Humvee accident, got addicted to opioid painkillers, later crystal meth. He joined the Ku Klux Klan. I helped him leave the Klan. I'm in the film for about five minutes, but really it's a masterpiece by filmmakers Din Blankenship and Aaron Bernhardt, as well as a brilliant editor named Catherine Garrison. It's their film, and uh, they deserve all the credit for it. But I, I'm just really honored to, to be a part of it. It's a really important film, and I was very taken by it. And we're going to include links where our listeners can find it and watch it. Everyone should. Awesome. I appreciate it, Kimmy. All right. Thanks, Arno. Keep up the great work. Thanks. You too. I hope you enjoyed Arno and his incredible story as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. And in this last season of All the Wiser, I have a favor to ask you. We have a big dream of putting together an episode with all of your reflections on this podcast. If you're a frequent listener, or if you're just listening to us for the first time, we would love to know. How have you been changed by the stories you've heard on All the Wiser? Was there a guest or an episode that you will never forget? A piece of wisdom that you've incorporated into your own life? Please let us know. You can call or text us at 310-243-6364. Or send us an email at hello at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also... DM us on Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast with your thoughts. It really would mean the world to us. So thank you. And don't forget to join us next week for A Little Wiser, where we will take a deeper dive into this episode and more. Thank you, as always, for listening to the show. I'm Erica Gerard, the producer of All the Wiser, coming to you from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Music and editing is done by composer John Lasala, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. And until next week, take extra special care of yourself and one another. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.